As you're taking your seats, for those of you who maybe haven't been with us in a while or maybe haven't been with us all this year, we are continuing in what's called the story. It looks like this. The story is a 31-chapter narrative of the story of the Bible. And we're going through this all year long. We just entered into the third part of this story. And preaching this concurrently with the Bible, uh, we've been providing uh, a reading list, and there's an insert in your bulletin that's a bookmark that has the readings that go with, so you can read them each day or all in one day if you like, that kind of encapsulate each chapter of the story that we're going through. Preaching this has its challenges, as you know if you've been with us, because oftentimes we're taking huge chunks of the Bible and we're trying to digest them all at once. And I've had some challenges in preaching, but today is by far one of the biggest, because I am going to preach to you on what amounts to 17 books of the Bible all in one sermon. That's right, 17 books of the Bible all in one sermon. I don't know how much time you got, but it's gonna, we're going to be a while. I'm just kidding. Or am I? Um, I'll explain where we're going in just a second, but let me set a little background for you. As we entered into the third part of the story, things have moved very quickly from bad to worse. If you weren't with us last week, what happened is in just two chapters, we moved from the height of Israel's prominence and preeminence to the beginning of the end as civil war has broken out among the 12 tribes of Israel. I have a slide up there that kind of gives you a graphic illustration of it. King Solomon had died and his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne. And one of Solomon's former managers, a man named Jeroboam, acting as a representative of the people, appealed to the new king to lighten the yoke, specifically to lighten the tax burden. But if you were with us last week, despite the fact that for just a little change in governmental policy, the, the fact that Jeroboam promised his allegiance along with the rest of his constituency, despite this, Rehoboam foolishly listened to the advice of his young transition team rather than the wise counsel of his elders, and he increased rather than lessened the burden upon his people. Added in, adding insult to injury, he even flexed a little muscle. Rehoboam threatened to be even more punitive in enforcing his decrees than his father had been. And just like that, within the first seven days of being in office, Rehoboam loses his hold on the kingdom his grandfather had painstakingly built by the grace of God. Now, as John mentioned last week, and I want to hit it again, it's, this is the point where the history recorded in the Bible and our understanding of the relationships of the books of the Bible to that history gets a little confusing because it's not chronological. And that's why I've created and provided a little cheat sheet for you that's inside your bulletin. This yellow piece of paper, which you might want to keep in front of you today, you might want to tuck in your Bibles, takes us from this point on to the end of the Old Testament. And when you're reading and studying on your own in particular, this will give you some sense of where you are in your reading and how it all fits together. So, just kind of keeping that in front of you, I'll refer back to it as we go throughout today. There's this split in this moment, in this conflict between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. What happens is 10 of the 12 tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes making up the nation of Israel declare their independence in this moment and they declare the independence of their territories in the north from Rehoboam's reign. Pledging their allegiance to Jeroboam, they form a new separate nation ironically and confusingly called Israel. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel that comes out of this divorce. Rehoboam, meanwhile, is left with two tribes the house of David, and the descendants of Benjamin. And he's located in the south, and they become the kingdom of Judah. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the aftershock 
of this divorce is a continual state of decline for both nations. Unprecedented, and if you've been with us thus far, you know that that means something. Unprecedented practices of idolatry, injustice, and immorality take place in the years that followed. 208 years, to be exact. Now, we might stop and ask, why? Why would God allow this period of darkness to take place among his people? And in fact, in our Wednesday night discussion this past week, that question came up. And in answering that question, why, I want to remind us as we go through the story, God had a goal for the nation of Israel. Going all the way back to Genesis, going all the way back to Genesis, God had a goal. When the Lord first promised in Genesis to build a nation out of an aging couple named Abraham and Sarah, God declared his plan to show the world through the people of Israel and his relationship with them who he is. We have a slide that we're going to remind you of that promise. God, through his relationship with Abraham and Sarah, wanted to show through the nation of Israel his relationship to them, who he is, that he was the only God, the God who was filled with love and grace for his people. He wanted to show through his relationship with Israel what he wants for his people, to be in relationship with all people, to graciously share his love, his truth, and justice with us, to teach us to live together to live the life we were intended for, to find our security and prosperity not in anything we do, but in who God is and what God can and will do for us. Israel, in her relationship with the Lord, in her dependence upon him, her reflection of his character was to draw other nations to her and in drawing other nations to her, to draw them into relationship with this God, their God. But as you've heard What's happening now is Israel has been drawn to act like the other nations. Instead of drawing people to her, Israel's been drawn to act like the other nations around her, to conduct herself like everyone else, worshiping false gods, looking out for number one, which means looking out for themselves, and in the process, oppressing others. According to the biblical record, the state of both unions, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, the state of both unions was so bad that of the 38 different kings who led these two kingdoms, 38, only eight were good. And if you're really savvy and you're paying attention to my yellow insert, you'll notice I put only six were good because when you really get into it, the reality is two or three of them were actually mostly good. It's like the princess bride. They were mostly alive, you know? <laughs> I mean, you really get into it. There's not many that are good. Think about that. Out of 38, just a handful were good. Collectively and repeatedly, all the rest are described without any reservation. They are judged without any hesitation as evil. Under the leadership of the kings of Israel and Judah, the people of both kingdoms returned back to the description of life that were given in the time of the judges. Do you remember way back in the judges? The people return to the life that's described in the time of the judges, that powerful line in Judges that reads, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So do you understand where we are in this point in history? Is as a result, the people, Israel as a nation, are no longer revealing the character and purposes of God. So why does this take place? Because for the Lord to continue to bless them would have sent the wrong message to Israel and the surrounding nations in order to honestly reflect his character and to protect the future integrity of his covenant promise, God divides Israel into two nations. And this is the judgment of God. And we don't shy away from this. We see God's judgment in the Bible. This is the judgment of God. As things are getting bad to worse of sort of dealing with it. 
But every time we see the judgment of God, I hope you notice in the story, we also see the grace of God. We don't dismiss the judgment of God, but we also get to see the grace of God. And the grace of God in this moment in the story is this. Even though the nation has been split in two, the grace of God is revealed in that he does not abandon his people. He doesn't just allow them to stew in their own juices and fade away in their ignorance and disobedience. No, the grace of God is revealed in the fact that the Lord keeps calling his people back into relationship with him. God brings forth the prophets, the prophets of Israel. He brings forth an opportunity for his voice to be heard among the people. That's embarrassing. I had this really cool thing planned, but I put my phone on do not disturb. You want to try to call me again? This so is not going to work as well as it did the first time. But just act like this happened. Oh, I'm sorry. Hello? This is a really bad time. Oh, you need to talk to me right now? Man, this was going to be so much cooler if I had actually taken my phone off. What? Okay, yeah, sure, tell me. That's it? Okay, thanks. Well, you might all want to put your phones on silent now. I was going to really surprise you, but that totally blew up in my face. Okay. The whole point. Move on. Okay. The whole point is what I just tried to really badly demonstrate to you is this is the prophets. This is the role of the prophets. God is continually trying to get a hold of Israel. He keeps calling them. But not with a cell phone, obviously. But through prophets. He sends messengers. And that's how we are to think of the prophets. The prophets were special messengers. And this sermon is covering the fullness of the prophets. And the way to think of the prophets are like living text messengers, okay? They were individuals who were called and quite literally sent on a mission from God. They were the voice of God to his people. Now, up in the, this point in the story, we've encountered prophets before, right? They've popped up here and there in the lives of key biblical figures. But this part of the story is different, okay? Because we've come to a moment in the history of God's people where the prophets become the last word, the last word of warning, and the only lifeline of hope for a divided nation that is falling apart. Your handout. I give you some guidance about the prophets because like I said, there's 17 books of prophets. 17 of them have their own book and they're listed here to, with the kingdoms that they were speaking to. When you get to the books of the prophets, you hear this distinction between the major prophets and the minor prophets. And sometimes people think major means more important and minor means not as important. That's not what it means. When we speak of the major prophets versus the minor prophets, we're talking of the length of the book. So when you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, those books are long. So they're the major prophets. When you read Amos, or Hosea, or Jonah, they're the minor prophets because their books are shorter, okay? 17 of these prophets that we're talking about this morning have books of their own, but some of the prophets that we're speaking of do not have books of their own. We just hear about them and the word they are given in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And something else about prophets that I want to give you is uh, we often think of prophets, sort of the shorthand way we talk about them as being fortune tellers. Prophets were not fortune tellers. The way to think of them were messengers. And these messengers came in all kinds. 
When we read through the, the stories of the prophets, we see some of them were noblemen in the courts of kings. Others were priests. Still others were farmers and herdsmen or just plain working folk. Their background and experiences were vastly different, but all the prophets delivered the same basic message. When evil started at the top with the king and soon ran rampant among the people, God would send a message through the prophets, and that message always had three elements to it. Remember, respond, and believe. The prophetic message was remember. The message was always a reminder to people to remember God's faithfulness in the past. The second part of the prophet's message across the board was a call to respond. The prophets would point out a challenge or obstacle before the people in the present. Remembering the faithfulness of God in the past, the prophets would call the people to respond, and that response was typically repentance. Turn around, go the other way in the midst of this obstacle and challenge before you now. Turn around, go a different way. Remember, respond, and the third element of every prophetic message was believe. The prophets would declare, as they pointed to the future, believe in the consequences, the cost of disobedience. Don't think you can escape God's judgment. Don't think you can escape the consequences of your actions in the decisions that you make. But the prophets, in pointing to the future, not only said to believe in the consequences, they also said to believe in the ironclad integrity of God's covenant with his people and his creation, despite those consequences. Despite the people and their disobedience, the prophets would say, despite your disobedience, despite you being a stiff-necked people, believe that God will still deliver a better world. Remember, respond, believe. And as we go through this period of time, for every king there was a prophet. And since the king represented the people for every generation, we might say there was a prophet and in the context of all this, we need to also understand for every king, for every generation where there was a biblical prophet, there were also false prophets. There were also people who told the king and the people around the king fake news, a false narrative, what everyone wanted to hear rather than the truth about what was going on. So when you think about this across the board, you'll always see a king and a generation and a biblical prophet and false prophets who are telling the people what they want to hear. Let's look at a quick example to get a sense of this. Let's look at what for me is one of the most dramatic showdowns in this part of the Bible. It takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of perhaps the worst king of all. And when I say the worst king of all, I mean the worst king of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah combined. And this king was named King Ahab. And King Ahab was the worst of the worst. And this story that I'm going to share with you also involves the first prophet during this period of time. The first prophet sent to the northern kingdom, and his name was Elijah. Now, King Ahab had a cohort, his infamous wife, who you may never have heard of, but she was so bad that we actually use her name as a way of describing someone's personality. It was Ahab and King Je Queen Jezebel. And when we talk about someone having a Jezebel-like spirit or being like a Jezebel, we're pointing back to her. She and King Ahab were an evil dynamic duo that descended the northern kingdom of Israel into great, great darkness, idolatry, child sacrifice, lying, intimidation, manipulation, murder, all of it taking place, all of it centered around this false worship of a god named Baal. 
And Elijah is sent by God to bring a message. And what's really cool is Elijah's name, in fact, his God-given name was his God-given message. Elijah, Eli, Eli, comes from Elohim, God. Jah, Elijah, Jah comes from Yahweh. In essence, Elijah's name means the Lord is God. Elijah's God-given name was his God-given message to the people of Israel. He was reminding them, calling them back, pointing them ahead to worshiping the one true God. The Lord is God, not Baal. Now to get their attention, Elijah announced there would be no more rain in the land until the Lord, who is God, said so. And so no rain fell for a long, long time. Instead, there was a great famine. Three and a half years of famine. And three and a half years into this famine and drought, Elijah challenges Ahab to a duel of sorts. And now I want to invite you to open up your Bibles if you brought them to 1 Kings chapter 18. And as you open up to 1 Kings chapter 18, let me set the stage for this part of the story. 1 Kings chapter 18. I told you that after three and a half years of famine, of drought, Elijah now challenges Ahab to a duel. And what's the challenge? The challenge is to see whose God is for real. What's going to happen is both Elijah and the prophets of Baal because the king is represented by his false prophets, the prophets of Baal. So Elijah and the prophets of Baal, these prophets whom Ahab and all the people of Israel are listening to, they're gonna go up to a mountain, Mount Carmel, and each side will prepare a sacrifice and place it on the altar. And the challenge is to see whose God will light the fire and consume the offering. Now to set the scene as you're getting there in your Bibles, it's one against 450. That's right, Elijah stands alone, one prophet against 450 false prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal go first. They pick their bull, they prepare their altar, and nothing happens. The prophets of Baal from early morning until late afternoon, they shout, they dance, they rant, they rave to get their God to respond to no avail. Silence. And the silence is broken when at this point Elijah indulges, if you have your open, you can see it, Elijah indulges in the first biblical record of trash talk. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They've been going and going and going, nothing's happened, and Elijah just suddenly perks up and says, you know, maybe Baal's in deep, deep in thought right now. Maybe Baal is a little busy at the moment. Yeah, that's it. Maybe Baal's traveling and he just is on his way back. You know, maybe Baal's sleeping. He might be sleeping right now. So you ought to shout a little louder to wake him up. And think, picture this, so 450 prophets, it works. The trash talk works. 450 prophets work themselves into a frenzy. They start screaming at the top of their lungs. In fact, they are so intense, they start cutting, mutilating themselves to get their God's attention. Can you imagine what this scene looked like, what their altar looked like at this point? Flies buzzing all around, the carcass of a bull rotting. Remember, it's hot, there's a drought. And these prophets are sweating and bleeding all over the place. And nothing happens. Finally, exhausted, 450 prophets, 450 prophets call it a day. And now it's Elijah's turn. If your Bibles are open to chapter 18, let's start reading in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Mind that, by the way. 
It had been torn down. He repairs the altar that used to be there. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the, Lord, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seeds of seed. That's a big trench. <laughs> he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, don't miss this part. Okay, remember, the whole point of this is the thing is supposed to be consumed by fire. So they're all set to start, but Elijah's got one more thing he wants to do. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So you understand this thing is immersed in water, which if you're a prophet of Baal who's been sweating and bleeding, you're looking at this and going, this guy's just nuts. So water all over the place. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. In case you missed this, the water doesn't just consume the sacrifice. It consumes everything. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate. It means they fell down on their face and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't close those Bibles. Keep them open. Now, <laughs> That's what I call lighting a fire under someone. Oh, come on. That was all right. Come on. Man, I'm having a day today. I gotta... <laughs> Following the fire. I don't know if you notice this. You go on in the reading, it becomes even more clear. Following the fire, the Lord doesn't just send water on this offering. He sends the rain and ends the drought. Water pours out from the heavens. Hello, Israel, God is calling. Do you think they got the message? Well, the last verse we read would imply that they did. But if we follow the story, if you're familiar with it, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, seeing for three and a half years how the heavens had been closed up, no rain has fallen, seeing that their God has remained silent while the one true God has revealed himself not only in consuming the offering covered in water, but bringing rain back onto, onto the land, into the land, Ahab and Jezebel do not soften their hearts. They harden their hearts all the more. They put a death sentence on Elijah. And the people follow their lead. These people who have just said, the Lord is God, and I would love to tell you that that's how the story ends. The Lord is God. The people continue to worship their false gods and listen to their lying prophets. 208 years of history, remember I told you, 208 years of history proves while Israel and Judah heard the word of the Lord, they didn't get the message. They didn't act on it. And the reason why I told you to keep your Bibles open is we could have seen this coming. If you're still in 18 in 1 Kings, if you look a little bit earlier, you can see this coming right before all the fireworks that we just read about. Right before all of that, Elijah puts the issue right before the people. If your Bible's open, look at verse 21. This is before everything goes down. Elijah puts the issue before the people. Elijah went before the people, verse 21 says, and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? 
if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the next sentence that ends this verse is for me perhaps some of the most devastating words of the Bible. But the people said nothing. Before all the fireworks, Elijah just puts it out there. Look, let's get real. If the Lord is God, follow him. Stop wavering. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people say nothing. Beloved, the word of the Lord spoken through the prophets was not only a word for Israel and Judah. It remains a message for all of us today. Like Israel and Judah, we hear God's word. We all hear God's word, but are we following it? Because what we learn from the prophets and the story of Israel and Judah is it's not enough. It's not enough to just hear the word of the Lord. We must act on it. Getting the message means living the message. Getting the message means living the message. And what is that message? We've talked about the, the, the consistent themes in the prophets, but what's the message of the prophets? For me, the message of the prophets, all 17 books, every occurrence we see in First and Second Kings and in Chronicles of the prophets, the message of the prophets, all of them, is summarized by one of my favorite verses from the prophet Micah. And Micah, if you look at that yellow sheet, was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. All of the, the words of the prophets, their entire message is summarized by one verse that Micah shares with the people. And here it is. It's Micah 6.8. Listen. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. God has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. If you read all of the 17 books of the prophets, you will notice these three repeated themes. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly before God. This is what God expects of us as reflections of his image, as disciples of his kingdom. We hear this call repeatedly through the story. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. We hear this message, but have we gotten the message yet? Israel and Judah didn't. Through their rituals, Israel and Judah are going through the motions with the Lord. They're going through the motions. They're showing up, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're doing all the things, they're going through the motions. But what Elijah points out and the prophets continue to point out is they're wavering between two opinions. They're going through the motions, but their true devotion is not to the God in whose image they are created, whose image they are to reflect. Their devotion is to the false gods of their own making, the idols that they have created in the image of their own desires and wants. And my friends, aren't we struggling with the same confusion, the same rebellion in our lives? We may not look to gods named Baal or any of these other gods, but aren't we struggling with the same temptation? Aren't we struggling with the same challenge where we do not worship the God in whose image we are made, but we instead worship the God who we make in our image? Pastor John teased this out last Sunday. He started to go here. How easily, he talked about, we conform God into the idols of our politics. 
How easily we conform God into the idol of our economics. How easily we conform God into the idol of our calendar, the pace of our lives. We make the Lord fit where we want him rather than seeking to follow where he leads, where he calls us. We put words in God's mouth that parrot our views and prejudices rather than letting his word penetrate our hearts and minds. How does this happen? Thousands of years, how do we find ourselves in the same place as Israel and Judah? Because maybe like Israel and Judah, we are listening to false prophets instead of the true ones. We are listening to false prophets instead of the true ones. Because my friends, the witness and word of the prophets remains unchanged. Thousands of years have come, but these words still stand today. This is still the message of God to his people. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Act justly. Act justly. Biblically, justice is acting righteously. Biblically, justice is acting righteously. And righteousness being where right is defined biblically as reflecting God's character. Justice is acting righteously. Righteousness is reflecting God's character and there is no way to avoid it. It cannot be denied. God's heart bends toward the weak, the oppressed, the alienated, the suffering, the abused, the poor. To put an even finer point on this biblically, Jesus tells us in a very provocative story, justice is not defined by what is best for us. Justice is defined as what is best for our neighbor. For when we do right by our neighbor, we do right by ourselves. And my friends, anyone who tells you differently... Anyone who tells you differently, even in the name of security, anyone who tells you differently, pricking our concerns about safety, is a false prophet. It is not justice. Love mercy. Love mercy. God is clear. We do not. We, and by we, I don't just mean the people in this room, I mean everyone in all creation. We do not, who do not deserve mercy. We don't deserve it have received mercy. We who do not deserve mercy have received mercy. While we were yet still sinners, beloved, before we confessed and acknowledged our wrongs, before we repented and start living differently, while we were yet still sinners, we were forgiven. Such grace is ours, not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. And as we have been loved, as we are loved, so we are to love others. So we are to show mercy, to extend forgiveness, even when mercy is not deserved. Even when forgiveness is not asked for. And anyone who spurs us to thirst for vengeance, anyone who tells us to give in to rage, anyone who says, demand blood, Lock them up and throw away the key is a false prophet. Love mercy. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. There's no place. There's no place for arrogance or presumption in our relationship with God. 
All that we have, all that we are is by God's grace. Therefore, we ought not to think better of ourselves over and against others. Putting down, looking down on others, throwing our weight around, or being dismissive of others. Those with whom we disagree, even those whom we don't understand, even those whom we don't like, is not a posture we can adopt or hold on to. There are to be no despised Samaritans, whether due to religious, ethnic, racial, or gender differences. There are to be no despised Samaritans in our life. Anyone, anyone who raises and inflames the specter of bigotry, prejudice, or discrimination towards another person is a false prophet. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Church, are we getting the message? Some of us are shaking our heads. Some of us are looking uncomfortable. Others of us are not looking at me at all. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Are we getting the message? Who are the prophets you're listening to? Who are the prophets we are listening to? On the radio, in, on the internet, in our circles at coffee. I am not saying that we should not be in conversation with other people. By all means, we need to talk and we need to listen to each other. But if you are listening and abiding by, if you are devoting yourself to and following, if you are making your theology, your philosophy, your politics, your economics, based upon those who are contrary to the word of God, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly, you are worshiping an idol. You are following a false prophet. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. This is what God requires of us. And how much more does God expect this of us thanks to the three great touchstone moments of our faith? Do you ever think about that? Israel and Judah hear this word from the prophets before what we know, what we've experienced. God calls us to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly, and he gives us the three touchstone moments of our faith, the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. By the cross, my friends, we have been given a new lease on life, a way out of a troubled conscience mired by guilt, a restless heart divided by shame and self-justification. Because of the cross, we can face the truth about ourselves and be set free by the forgiveness of Christ. And that means we are free to accept others as God has accepted us. Thanks to the resurrection, the power of sin, our fear of death, and the subsequent pull in our lives towards evil have been broken. Because of the resurrection, we don't have to run and hide. We don't have to fight against the darkness because in Christ, whatever kills us makes us stronger. We can risk, and it is a risk. We can risk loving without condition. We can risk being recklessly generous to those in need because there is nothing that matters that we can lose. Everything, all we need is ours, eternally secure in Christ. And then there's Pentecost. Through the gift of Pentecost, we have been empowered, empowered not just to follow Jesus, not just to seek the kingdom. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ is with us. Speaking, leading, shaping, and transforming us from within Thanks to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God is within us. 
The authority and power to heal, to encourage, to advocate, to witness, to speak the truth and act the truth in love is ours to wield and to share. Are we getting the message? My friends, and I I don't want you to misunderstand me, but coming to worship, giving generously of our time, our talent, and our treasure in the name of the Lord, being committed to prayer, Studying the word, these are all good things, right things. But coming to worship, giving generously, being committed to prayer, studying the word, they're not for the Lord's benefit. They're for our benefit, our growth, our maturity, our focus, our orientation. If we think these activities, these tools are the sum of our relationship with God, that this is what we are called to offer God, We're missing the point. We haven't gotten the message of the gospel, the good news that God gives to us. Our creator, our father, seeks, requires, desires for our hearts and minds to be changed, for our disposition towards him and each other to shift profoundly, for transformation to take place in our lives and our communities. What I'm saying to you, friends, is because of the cross, the resurrection and Pentecost, We can act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. These are no longer expectations to be met. These are the inevitable fruits of a life yielded to Christ. Are we getting the message? Do we understand? I don't know if you've noticed this, but there aren't individual prophets anymore. And by the way, that's the first sign of a false prophet. There are no individual prophets anymore. You notice that? We don't write books from Micah and Hosea and Jonah and Isaiah. There are no individual prophets anymore. You ever think about that? You know why there are no individual prophets anymore? Because as the church, and when I say the church, I mean the authentic, faithful, and true, not just believers, but followers of Jesus. When I say the church, I mean the community that's rooted in the word and led by the spirit. There aren't individual prophets anymore because the church, as the church, we are the prophetic voice of God. Are you getting the message? We are the prophetic voice of God. We are the messengers, all of us. We are the witnesses of the kingdom. The apostle Paul declared it to be so himself when he wrote, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. Peter likewise expressed the prophetic voice of the church this way, but you, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, so often as the church, we complain and lament that the world has not gotten the message about God. Beloved, have we? Have we? Are we reflecting the message of the gospel? Not our own personal gospel, not the gospel of this world, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are our lives together depicting the justice, the mercy, and the humility of the God who came down to be with us, to be one of us, the God who willingly and sacrificially gave his life for us and then through his victory over sin, death, and the devil offered his eternal life to us so we can become all we were created to be. Do our lives 
depict and reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because beloved, we are the prophetic voice of God. We are the prophetic voice of God, a voice that speaks the truth of God with the love of God, a voice whose words of justice, compassion, and humility are fluid through actions of advocacy and liberation, healing and hope, peace and reconciliation. We are the prophetic voice of God, a voice that does not spew hateful condemnations, but shouts joyous invitations to all of God's children to know and experience, to believe a better world is coming, the reality, the fullness and abundance of eternal life in Christ offered to everyone. My friends, we have been given a voice, a prophetic voice. Are we going to use it? The world, the very lives around you, the very lives around you are looking for hope, are desperate to be loved, are longing to know someone cares about them, are hungering in the midst of the chaos of this world to find peace. Will we speak the word of the Lord? The gospel into their lives. This is what is expected of us. This is what is expected of us as reflections of his image, as disciples of his kingdom. This is the good the Lord has shown us through the love of the cross, the victory of the resurrection, and the fulfillment of Pentecost. This is it. This is a wake-up call, church. Before you laugh, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, let us follow him. If we believe there is no God, if we believe we are God, then let's own it. Let's be honest. Let's follow that belief and see where it leads us. But make no mistake, we cannot say nothing. That phone will keep ringing. We cannot say nothing. Our lives, how we live them, the choices we make, what we invest in, how we carry and conduct ourselves, they reflect our answer. We cannot be silent. What we believe, who we are following is reflected in our lives, through our lives. God is still speaking. The Lord is calling. Will we take that call? Will we answer? Will we listen? God has left a message. Have we gotten the message yet? <laughs>